You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Jesus speaking. I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Oops. Thank you, Ben. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if I don't know you, my name's Aaron, one of the pastors here at DPC. I'm just making sure the uh, music stands nice and tight. I've had some uh, iPad adventures over the past few weeks. Yeah, uh, we're going on this journey through John chapters 13 to 21. It'd be great if you have the passage open that Ben just read. Uh, there's a little outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Alex mentioned earlier. So if that's useful for you to follow along with, uh, then please open that up. Uh, But yeah, please pray with me and uh, let's pray for one another. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather together again. We thank you for the joy it's already been to sing your praises. And uh, we thank you that you're eager to speak to us, uh, that you want to speak to our hearts and show us the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Uh, Please, Father, do that this afternoon by the power of your Spirit, I pray. Amen. Well, I I do wonder if you know the pain of being betrayed by someone you love. I certainly do. If you know this pain, it's it's hard to think of a a more agonising, certainly emotional pain, the pain of being betrayed by someone you love. Maybe you thought that your father always really cared for you and for your family, and perhaps he did, maybe he didn't, but... One day, all of a sudden, you found out that not only has your dad been having an affair for years, but he's also got a child with another woman. 
you feel confused, you feel outraged, you feel betrayed. Someone who you love deeply has betrayed you. Uh, someone who you would have considered to be a close and trusted friend, someone you'd shared lots of joys and sorrows in life with, uh, been through all sorts of experiences together, uh, they seem to always have your back in life, and yet one day, all of a sudden, it's like they turn against you. Uh, they start speaking poorly about you, they start second-guessing you, um, they really breach your trust. You're gutted, you feel betrayed. Uh, maybe you're sitting there uh, over the breakfast table or something, uh, your partner's phone is on the table nearby, you see a message flash up and you're like, oh, who's that from? Soon becomes apparent that they've been unfaithful to you. At first you just feel stupid. I don't know if you've been in this situation. You feel stupid. How could I possibly have missed this? I feel so taken advantage of. I just feel betrayed by someone I loved deeply. And this sort of thing can happen in the workplace as well, not necessarily with the same romance around it, but perhaps a work colleague who you've worked with for a long time, you've always uh, really kind of grown to care for them and respect them. You've worked alongside one another on a number of projects. They've always spoken up for you on your behalf. And yet when it came to the crunch, when it was kind of uh, their neck on the line or yours, uh, they were way too quick to throw you under the bus. And you just feel betrayed by them. I don't wonder if you know this pain of being betrayed by someone who you love. It's a pain that's all the more deep, isn't it? Because of the great love that you have for them, the depth of your love. You opened your life up to them, you gave them your heart, you poured yourself out for them, and then it's like they took your heart, put it on the ground and stomped all over it. That's really incredibly painful. Do you know this pain of being betrayed by someone you love? If you don't know this pain, chances are you will experience it at some point in your lifetime. And if you do know it, I want you to be assured from today's passage, from John chapter 13, that Jesus, your Saviour, knows this pain too. Jesus, your Saviour, knows the pain of being betrayed by someone he loves. And yet, all the more incredibly, in his great love, Jesus dies even for those who betray him. Jesus knows the pain of being betrayed by someone he loves and his great love, he dies even for those who betray him. So let's take a look at this passage in first in verses 18 to 20. We see that Jesus kind of publicly predicts that one of his closest friends is going to betray him. And now, of course, in John's Gospel, if you've read through John's Gospel, the first 12 chapters, uh, it's no secret really to us as John's readers uh, that Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, is going to betray him. Uh, I'll read you a couple of verses, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but in, in chapter 6, verses 70 to 71, uh, Jesus had this to say to his disciples. Uh, he said, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil, Jesus says. And then John explains in verse 71, he meant Judas, the son, of, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray Jesus. 
And so as early as John 6, John is preparing us for the fact Judas is going to betray Jesus. Again, in chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, uh, a few months back now, Steve preached on the passage where the woman poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. Uh, and John comments in that passage in verse 4, John 12, verse 4, uh, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, uh, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. What did he say? He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, right? It seems that Judas is a really generous and caring person towards the poor. And yet again, John comments, Judas didn't say this because he actually cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, that's the kind of apostles, common money bag, he was like the treasurer of the apostles. As keeper of the money bag, Judas used to help himself to what was put into it. And then earlier in this chapter, in chapter 13, uh, verse 2, John said as the Passover meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples kicked off, uh, he said, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So for us as John's readers, it's really no secret that Judas is going to betray Jesus. But... Now, the time of that betrayal is drawing near, the reality of it. And it's going to become all the more clear to Jesus' disciples, because so far it's been a little bit cryptic for them. So having uh, in verse 17, we're kind of picking up mid-idea here. In verse 17, Jesus said, everyone who follows his example of humbly serving others will be blessed. But then in verse 18, he says, I'm not referring to all of you, I know those whom I have chosen. And now some people read that and they think Jesus is saying, I know those who I have chosen and Judas isn't one of them. But given those verses I just read in John's Gospel and the verses that follow this one, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it, that Jesus deliberately chose Judas knowing that Judas would betray him. Why did Jesus do that? It could be for lots of different reasons, but Jesus explains his reason here uh, in the second part of verse uh, 18. He says it's to fulfill a particular passage of scripture. See there in verse 18, he says it was to fulfill this scripture, uh, which says, he who shared my bread has turned against me. Uh, If you've got a Bible with a footnote, you'll see that it's a quote from Psalm 41 verse 9. You should read Psalm 41 later on. It's a psalm that King David wrote in a time in his life when he was really very, very sick, uh, almost on his deathbed. And even at this life-threatening moment, his enemies were mocking him and speaking lies about him. Uh, But even worse than the, the, the deceit and the mockery of his enemies was the fact that one of his closest friends chose that moment to betray him. So in Psalm 41, verse 9, the whole verse, David says, even my closest friend, someone who I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Why does Jesus choose Judas, even though he knows Judas is going to betray him? It's because he wants people to be really clear on who he is. In particular, he wants his disciples to be clear on who he is. First, he he wants them to see that in this respect and in many respects, he is just like David. He is a son of David. 
a descendant of David, one who is like David. And that's significant. In Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, uh, the kings of Israel are described as the son of God. Today you have become my son, God says. They're described as the son of God, but there's an expectation of an ultimate son of God, a true king of Israel to come. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God said to King David that one day one of his descendants, one of his sons, uh, the true son of God, if you like, the ultimate son of God, uh, would come to establish his eternal kingdom. So from that point on, the the Jewish people, the people of Israel, uh, were always on the lookout for someone whose life kind of matched up to some degree with King David. They saw David's life as being full of little signposts pointing to this one true son of God, the Messiah, God's king. That's why it's significant that Jesus says, in this respect I am just like David, not in every respect. If you know your stories of the Bible, uh, David uh, commits adultery and has the woman's wife, uh, woman's husband murdered. Uh, Jesus didn't do that, just so you know, right? So Jesus isn't like David in every respect, but in this respect he is. In David's hour of greatest need, one of his closest friends betrayed him. And Jesus is saying, that's going to happen to me. One of my closest friends is going to betray me and that should show you that I am the promised king of God's people. I'm that true son of David, the Messiah, God's king. But he doesn't just want his disciples to believe that about him. Notice verse 19. Jesus says there, I am telling you this before it happens, that's before the betrayal happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. I am who I am. Uh, Jesus is not someone who's really kind of careless with his words. He always chooses his words very carefully. Uh, Jesus knows that in choosing these words to describe himself, I am who I am, he's deliberately taking us back to Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament. If you don't know Exodus chapter 3, it's a moment where God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. Pretty incredible. You can read it later on. And God's saying to Moses, go to Pharaoh in Egypt and tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, but I don't even know your name. And Pharaoh says, what's the name of the God who sends you? What am I supposed to say? And God says, tell Pharaoh, I am who I am has sent you. I said, what's Jesus saying by saying that you might believe that I am who I am? He's saying that you might believe not just that I'm the promised son of David, God's king, the Messiah, but also that I'm the eternal son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God the son who has had no beginning or end, who has always existed, is just, uh, it just is the kind of eternally self-existent son of God who can truly say, I am who I am. I have existed, I've always existed, I always will exist. Why does Jesus choose Judas, even though he knows Judas is going to betray him? It's because it's so important that people are clear on who he is that they understand that he is the Messiah. Remember John's purpose statement in his gospel, John chapter 20, I think it's verse 21 or 31, uh, that people might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that's 
the true son of David, the Messiah, the son of God, the eternal son of God, and that in believing this have life in Jesus' name. Jesus is on board with that. He wants people to be clear on who he is. So if you look in verse 20, he drives home the importance of having an accurate belief about him. Notice verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts uh, though anyone who I send uh, accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. You see, maybe uh, to accept uh, one of the apostles whom Jesus has sent uh, is to accept Jesus who sent them. Uh, And to accept Jesus is to accept the Father who sent Jesus, his Son, into the world. And as Jesus says this, he knows that 11 of his apostles who are here uh, sharing the Passover meal with him, 11 of them have done just that. They've accepted Jesus and therefore they're accepted by God, his Father in heaven. Uh, But Jesus is warning Judas, Judas who's already resolved not just to reject the 11 other apostles, those who Jesus has sent, but to reject Jesus too. And in so doing, Jesus is saying, you will not be accepted by my Father in heaven. You will be rejected by my Father in heaven. So Jesus publicly predicts that one of his closest friends is going to betray him. That's verses 18 to 20. Then in verses 21 and 22, he zooms in a little just to clarify that this closest friend of his is going to be among the 12 who are with him, one of the 12 who he loves. I notice verse 21. Ben did a great job of drawing this out in his Bible reading, I thought. Uh, you might think, oh, well, if Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, surely he wouldn't be bothered about it. You know, it would be cold and calculated kind of thing. Uh, but Jesus is really troubled about it. Notice verse 21. After Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit. John says he's troubled in spirit, but again, you might read that and think, oh, this is just an internal thing. But obviously, Jesus' trouble on the inside, in his spirit, in his emotions, was visible enough that it could be observed and written down in John's gospel. But Jesus is visibly troubled. Why? Because Jesus loves Judas. Jesus is invested in Judas. They've spent three years together. He cares about him. It's a massive grief to him that Judas is going to betray him. But he does want his other disciples to be prepared. So notice verse 21. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, one of you, one of you 12 sitting here at this meal, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, I don't know if you've been in this situation before, perhaps uh, at a meal with a group of friends or a family dinner of some kind and everyone's just chatting away, having lovely kind of civil conversation Uh, and then one member of the family or one uh, member of the group of friends uh, drops an absolute bombshell. They're kind of like real conversation killer. Everyone's speechless, they don't know what to say. Everyone's kind of awkwardly just wants everything to move on. That's a bit like this moment here. Right, imagine uh, sitting at a meal with someone, uh, a group of 11 of your friends, and, and one of them pipes up and says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. It's a bit of a conversation killer. Uh, so you notice uh, in verse uh, 
In verse 22, uh, the disciples are speechless. Jesus' disciples just stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. But Jesus is openly predicts that one of his 12 apostles who he loves is going to betray him. And then in verses 23 to 26, uh, he privately confirms that Judas, who he loves, is going to betray him. Uh, notice verse 23. John says, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, was reclining next to Jesus. Uh, you might imagine there's a little bit of debate about who is this disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, won't go into that. We can talk more later on if you like. But I reckon it's the Apostle John who's writing the gospel. He is this disciple who Jesus loves. And why does John describe himself in this kind of anonymous, cryptic way? I think for at least two reasons. Uh, the first is, uh, for John, the most important thing about him was the fact that Jesus loved him. Like that was core to who John was. He was a disciple who Jesus, God himself in human form, Jesus, loved. I think John would have been someone who never lost the wonder of that. I wonder if you're a disciple of Jesus, if that is core to who you are. Are you filled with wonder and thanks and praise that you are a disciple whom Jesus loves? Sometimes here at DPC we sing a song that Sharon wrote, was it saying, hallelujah, to be loved by you? I reckon that reflects the heart of the Apostle John. Hallelujah, to be a disciple whom Jesus loved. This was core to who John was. So I think that's the first reason. The second reason uh, is that John didn't want in any way to distract people from Jesus. You might remember uh, back in John chapter 3, uh, there was another John, John the Baptist, uh, and he said that when Jesus came on the scene in his public ministry, uh, he said, Jesus must become greater and I must become lesser. Right, John the Baptist didn't want to take the spotlight away from Jesus at all. He wanted all the glory to be on Jesus. And the Apostle John's similar here. Right, he's so keen not to distract people from Jesus that he doesn't even want to give his name. I'm just some disciple who Jesus loves. And that's incredibly humble of John because he does actually have perhaps a unique and pretty close relationship with Jesus. You see there in verse 23, John says that he was reclining next to Jesus. But the language actually, we, you know, maybe we're, our Bible translators are a bit nervous about this because we're not sure about the kind of level of intimacy between two men, uh, but it actually says that he's reclining against Jesus' chest, or in the old language, against Jesus' bosom. That sounds a bit weird to us, but what's the point? The point is that in John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus, as God's son, his relationship with God, his father, uh, was described as being the one and only son who comes from the father's bosom from his chest. It's a picture of the love and intimacy that exists between Jesus and his Father in heaven. And so there's a little hint here that the Apostle John shares that kind of closeness with Jesus. He's the one who's able to recline against Jesus' chest, enjoying deep closeness and intimacy with Jesus. 
So I said last week, as they were sharing this meal, they were uh, lying, kind of reclining around a low table. Uh, probably, you know, if you imagine this is Jesus, and Judas is probably uh, to his right, reclining on his left, and he's able to kind of lean back into Jesus' chest. And so back at the meal, the disciple whom Jesus loves is reclining next to Jesus. Uh, All the other disciples are just staring at one another. No one really wants to say anything. Uh, Even Peter, who's normally very outspoken, uh, doesn't want to say anything openly. Uh, So what does he do? He gives a signal to the Apostle John. Notice verse 24. Simon Peter uh, motioned to the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, and said, hey, Ask him which of one he which of us he means. But he knows it'll be easy for John to lean back and quietly ask Jesus on the side, who is it who's going to betray you? So that's what John does. And Jesus answers him in verse 26. He says, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, uh, Jesus gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I think it's pretty clear that this is a a bit of a private conversation on the side between Jesus and John and Judas, and perhaps Peter's watching on. I don't know how much he hears. I think it's clear because in verses 29 and 30, when Judas leaves the meal... The other apostles don't really know why he's going, you know? Like, is he going to get more supplies for the meal or to give some extra money to the poor? They don't know. Here, Jesus privately confirms that Judas, who he loves, is going to betray him. And then in the end of the passage, verses uh, 27 to 30, Uh, we see that Judas' act of betraying Jesus, despite Jesus' great love for him, uh, is a satanic act of darkness. That's pretty intense, right? A satanic act of darkness. That's how John describes Judas' betrayal here. Now, you you might be here. I don't know everyone who's here. Uh, Perhaps you're here and you're just checking out Christianity and you hear this mention of Satan. You heard Ben mention Satan when he read the Bible. Now, I'm talking about Satan. And you're thinking, well, surely Christians don't still believe in Satan. You know, maybe they did years ago when we didn't have science and rational arguments and all that. But surely these days, Christians don't believe a kind of personal, powerful, supernatural, evil being exists in Satan. And I want to say, yeah, as Christians, we do believe Satan exists. And it's not illogical to believe that Satan exists. So you just go with me for a second. Uh, And if you're here and you have this objection, I'd love to talk to you later on, but I have not met anyone who can kind of give me a logical argument that proves that a supernatural, personal, powerful, good being can't exist. I've not met someone who can prove that God can't exist. You might choose to believe that God doesn't exist. That's fine. That's your kind of faith position but I don't think you can prove that using logic. Likewise, I don't think anyone can prove that Satan doesn't exist. A personal, powerful, supernatural, evil being. It's not illogical to believe that Satan exists. And John certainly believes that Satan exists. Uh, Back in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2, he'd already said that the devil, another name for Satan... 
uh, had prompted Judas, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Right? He planted in Judas's heart the desire to betray Jesus, to get money from the Jewish authorities. Uh, and here in verse 27, Satan's influence over Judas's heart and his life intensifies. John says, as soon as, as soon as Judas took the bread from Jesus, Satan entered into him. You see, I think with Jesus uh, offering this piece of bread to Judas, it was like one last peace offering, one last olive leaf, you know, an opportunity for Judas to confess what he's about to do and to soften his heart and to receive Jesus' love. But that's not what Jesus does at all. He hardens his heart. He refuses to confess what he's about to do. He rejects Jesus. And John says that's the moment where the evil spiritual power of Satan got a firm grip on Judas's life. Right? That's the evidence of a heart that is hard to Jesus. That's the evidence of Satan's power at work. Uh, so Jesus says to Judas, well, if that's what you're going to do, do it quickly. You know, get on with it. What you are about to do, do it quickly. Uh, the rest of the 12 have their questions. Why does Judas up and leave? We talked about that before. And at the end of verse 30, John simply says, it was night. Uh, in John's Gospel, uh, the, t the categories of kind of night and day and light and darkness, they're not just kind of observations about the time of day. They're often spiritual. They have a kind of deep spiritual meaning. So what's John saying here? I, I think he's not just making a, a little observation about the time that Judas left the meal. He's saying that Judas's act of betraying Jesus, despite Jesus' great love for him, was a satanic act of darkness. It showed that Satan was at work in his life and it showed that he loved the dark things of money and power and status more than he loved Jesus, the light of the world. So I wonder if you know the deep and really agonising pain of being betrayed by someone you love. You experienced that pain before. If you have, I hope there's a comfort in this passage that Jesus knows that pain too. Jesus knows the pain of being betrayed by someone he loves. Uh, in Jesus, you don't have a God who's distant from the pain of betrayal, who's unfamiliar with it, but a God who has entered into the pain of betrayal. He knows that pain. He's right there with you if you sit here today experiencing the pain of being betrayed by someone you love. And yet that's not the only good news of this passage. Perhaps even better news is that Jesus, uh, in his great love, dies even for those who betray him. And that's better news because I think when we read this passage, we might be tempted uh, to put ourselves exclusively in Jesus' shoes as if we're the kind of good and pure and innocent ones who are being betrayed by the bad guys. Uh, but actually, in our sin, we're a little bit more like Judas than we think. 
we're often drawn away from Jesus. We reject Jesus. We turn against Jesus because of our sinful desire for other things. We betray Jesus. And so what wonderful news that in his great love, Jesus dies even for those who betray him. What do those who have betrayed Jesus, God's king, deserve? They deserve to be cast out of God's presence. They deserve to die the death of a traitor, one who has committed the ultimate act of treason against the king that God has put in place. That's what we deserve. And yet Jesus takes that punishment for us on the cross. He is cast out of God's presence, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dies the death of a traitor. He dies the death of one who has betrayed God. So that because of his great love for us, his great act of sacrifice for us, we who who had betrayed him, who were once hostile to him, can be welcomed at his table, which we'll remember in a little bit, sitting at his table as his dearly loved children. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I, I do pray... I do pray that it's encouragement to you to know uh, that Jesus knows the pain of being betrayed by someone he loves and in his great love he dies even for those who betray him. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that your word uh, speaks to uh, the deep pains and griefs and hurts in our life. Uh, even to that pain that comes from being betrayed by people we love. Uh, We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the comfort of knowing that you are familiar with this pain, this agony of being betrayed uh, by someone you love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your incredible, uh, abundant, overflowing love for us, uh, you gave your life. Uh, even for we who betray you and turn against you. We praise you for this wonderful comfort and assurance uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.